Hello, and welcome to the AMSSM Sports Medcast series, produced in association with the British Journal of Sports Medicine. I am your host, Dr. Steve Lubert, a current PGY3 PM&R resident at the University of Missouri. I am honored to introduce our guest speaker today, Dr. Jeremy Stanek. Dr. Stanek is a sports and performing arts medicine physiatrist faculty member at Stanford University. He works with Drum Corps International, DCI, local college music programs in the California Bay Area, and also treats a wide array of performers from the San Francisco Symphony, San Francisco Ballet, and San Francisco Opera. To further add to his performing arts breadth, he treats actors and circus artists as well. Dr. Stanek is duly board certified in both physical medicine and rehabilitation, as well as sports medicine. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Stanek. Thank you very much for having me. So with performing arts medicine being an emerging field, can you tell us a little bit about your inspiration for becoming a performing arts physician, as well as discuss the patient populations you typically see and treat, especially regarding your performing arts expertise? Yeah, so my interest in performing arts medicine is very personal. I got a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in trumpet performance, and I was a professional trumpet player for about 10 years. I started noticing a decline in my trumpet playing ability. You know, this was kind of a progressive process. And long story short, I ultimately got diagnosed with focal dystonia and uh, was told that I would have to choose a new career because it was not something that was really treatable uh, for brass musicians at the time. Uh, so after a couple of years of soul searching, trying to figure out what to do, I, I decided to go into medicine so that I could help other musicians do what they love to do. Uh, so I went through the whole medical school process, uh, residency and fellowship, knowing that performing arts medicine was going to be the main focus of my practice or really what I wanted to do ultimately. And so that's how I got to where I am now, uh, just because, you know, I didn't want my injury to like put a damper on the rest of my life. I, you know, utilize that to help other performers stay on stage uh, because I, I really didn't want my education and experience as a performer to go to waste. And, you know, I thought, you know, going into medicine is the best way to use those tools. As far as the types of patient populations Know, that I see here, right now, any, I'd say any any place that you go, it's really hard to find an area where performing arts medicine can be the only thing that you do, just because there aren't sure. that many performers that are out there. You know, with my practice now, I see athletes, I see general musculoskeletal conditions, I, I see spine, I see a little bit of everything. Uh, when it comes to the arts medicine folks that I see, I see a wide variety of ages. I think the oldest uh, patient I've had was a dancer in her mid-90s, uh, a flamenco dancer. Uh, and oh, then wow. I, I also have uh, patients that are not even teenagers yet. Uh, most of them are dancers, more so than musicians. Uh, but I see everything in between, and I see a lot of dancers, I see a lot of musicians, not as many circus artists and actors as I see musicians and dancers. That is definitely a wide variety of people that you see and such a personal story too. just being able to give that back and having that experience definitely makes you unique, I feel, as a performing arts physician. What are some of the key elements that have been most helpful out of listening that history 
with performing arts medicine as well as what are the different parts of your physical exam that you have to tailor for dancers and musicians? Yeah, and I, I think, you know, having my background as a performer, as some other uh, physicians have in their toolbox as well, I think that makes us a little bit more adept to doing a good history physical exam with performers, sure. uh, because that kind of gives us a little bit more insight on the types of, you know, mental and physical stressors that they go through. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, the things that we do with our performers aren't that different from what you would do with an athlete that comes in. You do your basic history taking, where does it hurt, how long has it been hurting, what makes it better, what makes it worse, things like that. Uh, mm -hmm. The things that make a history and an exam a little bit different from the non-performer population is that, you know, we want to get a little bit more history about the art that they do. So how long have they been playing or dancing? Have they had any similar injuries? At what level are they? Are they an amateur? Are they in college? Are they professional? Do they do freelance? Do they perform with a specific group? Uh, what's the genre of the type of dance or the type of music that they perform? Because that can really have a big impact on what they're doing as far as performance-wise, rehearsal-wise, the type of equipment they may be using. Also, something very specific for our performers is we want to know what's a typical day or a typical week like for them. I usually ask them to describe the warm-up that they do, if they do one, um, because <laughs> there are a lot of them that are out there that don't do a warm at all. They just you know, go right into their thing, and that's probably why they got injured. We also really want to know a lot about how much time do they spend each day or during the week practicing, rehearsing, or performing because that time tends to add up very, very quickly. Uh, and, and a lot of them don't think about that. They, they only think about maybe their personal practice time or how much time they spend in performances, but they don't usually put the two together. Knowing how frequent and how long of a break they may take, that's also very, very important. And then do they do any cooling down or any stretching? Uh, that's also good to know. Uh, similar to with our athletes, we wanna know are there any recent changes in the amount of playing that they've been doing or the amount of dancing they've been doing? What kind of music, uh, what kind of dancing are they currently practicing? Have there been any big changes? Uh, have they been trying to prepare for any big upcoming performances, any auditions? Uh, what kind of environment are they practicing in or performing in? Is it indoors? Is it outdoors? Uh, and are there any recent equipment changes? These can really have a significant impact uh, on their health. When it comes to physical exam, similar to our athletes, you do your standard physical exam first because common things are common. When I see my musicians, I always, always have them bring their instrument with them to their visit because I want to examine them as they're performing on their instrument. In the case of piano players, we have a full-size 88 key keyboard that's here in one of our clinic rooms, so they don't have to worry about bringing a piano. Uh, <laughs> that's good <laughs> yeah. um, they may want to bring their piano bench because piano players are very finicky with how high they are in relation to the keyboard uh, when it comes to dancers I will always have them bring the type of shoes that they normally dance in so if it's an Irish dancer that also does some ballet I want them to bring whichever pair of shoes they either are having pain in or whichever shoes they do the majority of their dancing in. that's the, the most important thing uh, it's always helpful if they have already done a warm-up before they come into clinic as well. That way, they're just kind of ready to go as far as showing me how they play their instrument or the types of uh, dance maneuvers. 
I usually will have them do something that's easy as well as something that's difficult because I want to test them a little bit. Uh, mm -hmm. When it comes to musicians, especially our brass musicians, I will always have them demonstrate the full range of the instrument because with brass players, that's going to change on a day-to-day -day basis. It kind of depends sure. on how your lips feel. Uh, that's really going to make a big impact you know, on what your range is day-to-day. -day. Uh, I will have them also play things that are in uh, different dynamic ranges as well, so soft and loud. I'll have them try to play things that are attacked very softly or very, very uh, hard, so staccato and legato. And that mm -hmm. being said, it's very, very good for you to know the lingo of musicians and dancers that you're going to be treating these folks. So knowing the difference between staccato and legato or forte and piano is very, very important. And it's going to make the performer a lot more at ease if you know what they're talking about when they're talking in their lingo. Additionally, you know, when I'm testing them uh, playing their instrument, I'll have them try doing different types of articulation, different speeds. So I really want to test them as, as good as I can. And I always want them to do things that demonstrate the pain that they typically have. That way I can better assess, okay, is there something that they're doing that's causing this? You know, don't be afraid to walk around them and observe them very closely. Don't be afraid to put your hands on them while they're doing something and see if you can make small adjustments that, that either exacerbate or improve uh, the symptoms that they're having. I find that video is very, very helpful when looking at circus artists as well as musicians and dancers. Uh, this can be done you know, just using your phone or a tablet computer and using the video function. And it's helpful for them because not always are they practicing in front of a mirror that most of your college programs are going to have mirrors in their practice facilities. That way they can observe what they're doing. But, you know, these folks are not always utilizing those tools. And so if you're able to take a recording, that's not only going to help you analyze what their body is doing either in slow-mo or real time, but you can also use that to show the patient and kind of demonstrate to them, hey, look at what your shoulder is doing here or what your elbow is doing here. So you can use it as a teaching tool as well as a diagnostic tool. And you really have to watch for really, really small nuances uh, with all of your artists because they're very well in tune with their body. And they may have a really teeny tiny issue that they're doing, like a small movement or something that they're doing that's really hard to perceive, but that might be the only thing that's causing their problem. So you really have to have a, a keen eye. Uh, when it comes to our musicians, it also is helpful if you have a keen ear because sometimes you can hear what's going on and ask them to make a small adjustment and that totally fixes everything. Uh, so like with our athletes, don't be afraid to put your hands on them. You know, there's no harm in touching the patients and trying to figure out what's going on. I was told many times in medical school that if you can take a good history and do a physical exam, a lot of times that's all you need to do to get a good diagnosis. And so those are really the, the fundamental things, I think, when it comes to physical exam of a performing artist. And so definitely having that musical background, just <laughs> literally and figuratively amplify your ability to be a strong performing arts physician. So that's, correct. that's good to know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, like with our, with our brass players, uh, you know, me being a trumpet player, I've got a bazillion mouthpieces. Uh, at my disposal because I, I've got at least two dozen mouthpieces of my own that I've used over the years. And so I'll use those sometimes when I have a trumpet player who's, who's in my clinic 
and we'll experiment with different sizes of mouthpieces and that can sometimes make a difference in not just their sound but also the issue that they came in to see before. Gotcha and do you feel too that even having you're very strong with your background in brass instruments too and how that has there been a lot to learn with other instruments as well from coming from other musicians that come to your practice? Uh, yeah, I would say so. Uh, you know, sitting in the back of the orchestra, I didn't play all the time because there's some pieces like uh, some of the Mozart operas where the trumpets are basically sitting there for 30 minutes doing mm -hmm. nothing. And you're just surrounded by all this amazing music, though. Uh, and so I was always observing what all of the other musicians are doing during that time period. So, you know, just from my time sitting in the orchestra, uh, I was able to learn a lot just by observation. When, when I was forming and now, uh, I've always been very inquisitive and always have asked my, my colleagues who play other instruments, hey, how do you do this? Or what would you do mm. if this is going on with your instrument? And so I've learned things you know, from different instrumentalists over the years, and I still do the same thing. Uh, I've still got good friends who play in professional orchestras around the world. And you know, whenever I have a question about something, I'll usually ask them but it's not uncommon for me to learn something new from a patient that I'm seeing. So patients can be great teachers for us as well. Sure, that's, that's exciting to always being a lifelong learner, picking up on new. Um... And, and that's why they call it practicing medicine and not performing medicine. <laughs> sure. Seeing all those different types of patients, what are some of the common injury patterns that you have seen most commonly per the types of musicians that you've had? Yeah, it really depends a lot upon what their instrument is. I will say overall, uh, like I said, common things are common. Among all musicians, I would say back pain is the most common thing. And when you think about it, most musicians are sitting a lot. They sit for all of their rehearsals. They sit for all of their performances. Uh, a lot of times they will also sit when they're practicing at home. There are a few exceptions. Uh, with that, you know, one being folks who play double bass, but they're usually standing up and leaning forward. And it's almost like they're hugging their instrument. So they're always in a forward flex position. So they're using their back quite a bit. Uh, percussion uh, are really the others who are standing most of the time. When you think about things like your rock bands, country bands, jazz, things like that, mostly it's you know, your guitarists. Uh, who are standing most of the time. But all of those folks get back pain. Uh, that's very mm -hmm. common. When it comes to string players, uh, I see a fair amount of neck pain as well as left shoulder and left wrist. And when you think about it, they're resting the instrument on their left shoulder. They tend to bend or side bend their head over to rest it on the instrument. And then they're constantly moving their left arm around uh, to finger the different notes on the instrument. Uh, even though they're constantly moving their right shoulder uh, for bowing the instrument, I see more pain on the left than I do on the right. When it comes to brass players, uh, I see a few lip injuries every now and then, but still, they, they get a lot of back pain. Same thing for woodwind players. They get a lot of back pain, too. Uh, with woodwind and piano players, though, I see a fair amount of carpal tunnel syndrome, as well as just generalized wrist pain and occasionally some finger arthritis. How early have you seen that arthritis in those musicians? 
when it comes to like true arthritis, I would say 50s is the earliest okay. I've really seen. I've, I've seen people with a lot of hand and wrist pain that are much, much younger than that. I've seen some college students who've had hand and wrist pain, uh, but it was really? by no means arthritis. It was usually uh, a tendinopathy of some sort. Some of the injury patterns that you've seen in dancers, is that also a lot of, like, what are the common things that you've seen with them? Yeah, it's, it's kind of what you would expect. Uh, I see a lot mm-hmm. of hip pain and a lot of foot and ankle pain. I would say a lot of the hip pain that I've seen, it's been impingement, a lot mm-hmm. of impingement. With the foot and ankle, uh, it's usually a tendinopathy. Flexor okay. callus longest tendinopathy. I could not tell you how many times I've seen. <laughs> uh, that's wow. very, very common, especially among uh, our ballet dancers. But uh, also have seen a fair amount of uh, stress injuries and stress fractures. Uh, that's mostly been among Irish dancers uh, as opposed to ballet dancers. Yeah, especially with their different footwork, you can kind of, the more that you understand it, that you can see yeah. how anat- yeah, exactly. anatomically that lines up. Yeah. Yeah. And so musicians and dancers both have a lot of injuries, but you're able to zone it in really well as to what you really see a lot, but I'm sure you have outliers as well. So for those outliers, what do you typically use to turn to for things that are kind of off the wall or specific guidelines, especially with treatment? What kinds of resources do you use? In your yeah, practice. so there, yeah, there's, there's, there actually are a couple textbooks uh, on okay. performing arts medicine that are out there. The most recent one that I've seen uh, was written by uh, my colleague Dr. Lauren Elson, who is at uh, Spalding Rehab uh, through Harvard in Boston. The first one that came out uh, was kind of a, a collaboration uh, with Dr. Lederman, uh, who's a neurologist at Case Western. Uh, as well as my former uh, doctor, uh, Dr. Alice Brenfenbrenner, uh, who was at the Rehab Institute of Chicago. Uh, and that book came out, I think it was, that one was about 10 years ago or so. Okay. So those are both good resources. You know, when it comes to things like a tendinopathy, back pain, things like that, you know, you're going to treat it just as you would any other athlete or any non-athlete who comes in off the street. Uh, the things that make it a little bit different with your musician and your dancer and your artist population is that you have to think about, okay, what's their rehearsal schedule like? What's their performance schedule like? Are we working with a timeline here? Like, do they have something coming up that we need to try to at least get them well enough so they can get through it and then they can take some time off after that? So it's, it's really similar to our athlete population in that regard. We don't always have the luxury of time to let things heal Mm -hmm. like we really wanted to. You know, the overall treatment should be the same as what all of our textbooks, you know, have and all of our journal articles have. But we might have to tweak things a little bit just based upon what's their rehearsal and performance schedule like. And that's definitely where the art comes in, I'm sure, of learning what works best with your specific patient and that patients are individuals as well, not just stats. Exactly, exactly. And like if we have a a string player who's got a torn rotator cuff and they really should have surgery, but they have, you know, half of their season left, can we get them by with doing an injection into the subdeltoid space until they get to a point where they've got enough time in their schedule where they can get a surgery and do an appropriate recovery after that? So things like that are what we have to try to deal with. 
Gotcha. A lot of finesse. For yes, sure. exactly. <laughs> and to our listeners out there that are also aspiring performing arts physicians, how would you recommend to get started and more involved? That's a really good question. You know, there are lots of big orchestras and lots of big opera companies and ballet companies in all of your major cities. So if you are in a major city where you have those things available, you're at quite an advantage. If you are at an area though that has a college music program, that's still a good place to start getting some experience. There aren't always going to be folks in your neighborhood who do performing arts medicine. Uh, one of the resources that's out there is the Performing Arts Medicine Association. There are also some arts medicine interest groups that are affiliated with other professional organizations, such as the American Association of PM&R. So most of the groups are going to have at least some kind of a little subgroup that looks at performing arts medicine. So reaching out and finding who those people are through those organizations is one thing to do. In your local community, you can try to find if there are people who treat performing artists, and that can be either a physician or an occupational therapist or a physical therapist. Additionally, you can talk to some of the college music programs too, because they may have some providers that they you know, frequently send their students to uh, for treatment. That said, I have found that there really are not a whole lot of college music programs who have that at their disposal, but some do. And so it's mm -hmm. worth uh, at least asking if they have someone. Those of us that are pretty active in you know, teaching and education, as well as seeing performing artists, most of us are very, very open. You know, If someone wants to email us, or get in touch with us somehow and you know, come do some shadowing or, or just ask us, hey, do you have any advice or do you know somebody who's in this area who I could shadow with? You know, it's a pretty tight-knit group. Most of us know one another. You know, we communicate with one another all the time. And so it's pretty easy for us to at least try to hook you up with someone who's close enough that you can maybe do some shadowing or get some more experience. I was fortunate enough, I was able to get some experience seeing musicians when I was resident. Uh, and also, when I did my fellowship training uh, in St. Louis, I got to work with the arts medicine clinic there at Wash U. That was very helpful as well. But I know not everybody has that at their disposal. But there are a lot of resources that are out there. You just have to get in touch with those resources. Thank you so much, Dr. Stanek, for your time and speaking with us today. And thank you, listeners, for listening with the AMSSM. And please join us for the next upcoming AMSSM Sports Medcast series. Thank you again, Dr. Stanek. This has been great. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.